Now we are going to have our final message of today by Curtis Whiteley entitled, A Hunger and Thirst for Righteousness. Thank you, Owen. Good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone here, uh, as it always is, on another Sabbath day. I'd like to just start off just kind of... uh, expressing my appreciation uh, about a week and a half ago as many of you probably got a prayer request uh, regarding me uh, uh, having a little bit of a uh, I don't I don't even know what it is I guess a little bit of a heart issue uh, this was on New Year's Eve and I'm just sitting there at about 11 o'clock at night and I started having some what felt like heart palpitations or something along those lines and it went on for about 10 or 15 minutes off and on, and the football player in me kind of got up and thought I'd just walk it off. And so I kind of stood up and walked around, and just my, my heart rate just, just elevated. And I don't know if it was a mixture of kind of anxiety. You know, you start getting stuff with your heart going on. You start thinking, you know, is this, is this what they talk about? Is this all the... You, know, you hear stories about people saying things of them going through different things with their heart. And so... Uh, of course, I went in, and uh, it happened to be New Year's Day, so by that time, so none of the services were running that they usually run, so I had to stay a couple days in the hospital uh, because they wanted to run a bunch of tests, but they ran a bunch of tests, uh, blood work was all normal, uh, ultra, or not ultrasound, but a echocardiogram, everything was, was completely uh, normal, so... Uh, I'm telling you this as a way of kind of updating you of what happened, but also expressing my appreciation. I got many phone calls and uh, people praying for me, and I just I, I want to say thank you. Uh, God is God is good, and uh, hopefully it's a, kind of a little bit of a wake up call, I guess, to be a little bit more conscientious about you know being 34, uh, not being 24 anymore. And there's a little bit of a difference there. So. Uh, and I know that sounds funny because I know a lot of people are thinking, 34, that's still really young. But I, I've heard some stories uh, from the IMSA individual that was working with me as well as some of the nurses. Uh, uh, in this day and age, there's, some of these things are happening earlier and earlier for people. So I just want to express my, my thanks and my gratitude uh, for your thoughts and for your prayers and for your phone calls. So as Owen mentioned, the title of my message today is A Hunger and Thirst for righteousness. And we're all here. We're human beings. Those are physical terms, right? Those are physical conditions that we've experienced before. Every year, we celebrate and, and, and uh, honor and observe the Day of Atonement. And so we, we know what it's like to be hungry. We know what it's like to go thirsty. I don't know what it's like to go hungry and thirsty as a perpetual condition though every time I read this passage I think of a story that my grandfather told me he was someone who passed away just marking the uh, fourth year of his passing this past December and it wasn't until later in his life that I was able actually to sit down with him I actually will say that it was he died in December but uh, in May is when I actually sat down uh, the the May before he, he passed away and I got to Talked to him a lot about his experiences growing up. He was 86 years old when he passed away. Or not 86, 88 years old when he passed away. And he was a child of the Depression. Okay? Uh, the Great Depression. And he told me stories about his childhood. He lived in, in a home with a mother that had a father that was kind of in and out of the home. Would spend months on end sometimes out of the home because he just ran off and would be you know, doing things with other people and neglecting his family. And he was the only male of five children. And so his mother oftentimes wouldn't have enough food to quite get by. And they would have to go and sometimes walk miles just to search for help. And I remember, you know, just thinking, you know, she lived to be 100 years old, this woman who had five children, one boy, five kids, and experienced a life where, you know, she did not work. This was during the days where it was, you know, work wasn't readily available. I mean, it was very common for people to go hungry. 
it was very common for people to live a life where you didn't know where your next meal might come from. And so by the grace of God, that they, they came to a point where they had ran out of food. Back in those days, I was told, and you know, I've heard stories when you'd, you'd buy a 50-pound bag of beans, and it would last you for a long time. I mean, they really would ration it and stretch it out as long as they could. Well, they came to the last little bit of that 50-pound bean, uh, bean bag, and, and it was time to, there was no other resort other than to start walking, walking on dirt roads, clothes that barely fit, clothes that were worn out, and by the grace of God, they had someone that took them in. They lived in Stone Bluff, if you know where Stone Bluff, Oklahoma is, right south of Coweta, Oklahoma. And they walked to Coweta, and by the grace of God, they had some help, some people that were willing, even though times were tough for everybody, were willing to take them in and to feed them and to clothe them. And this affected my grandfather for the rest of his life, especially as he got older. And he was a man that was uh, a World War II veteran. He lived a life where at the 18 years of age, he found himself in the middle of the Pacific Ocean right before and right after they had dropped the bombs on Japan. But as he lived his life, I've heard stories about how this changed the way he saw things, the way that he did things. He understood what it was like to hunger. He was a businessman after he got out of the, the military, and he eventually would become a business owner. And he was a careful business individual. He wasn't one of those mavericks that would just go out and spend money and invest it and risk it because he understood as a child of the Depression, he understood what it was like to go hungry. Growing up, my mother told me that they were oftentimes taking food to people. They were, he, he, understanding this and experiencing this led him to seek people out, understanding what it was like for family members or friends. And he worked in, 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 the, in the lumber business, so he's coming into contact with people of all different walks of life and learning about situations that they might be involved in. He understood what it was like to hunger and thirst. Which brings me to what I want to talk to us about today, and that is something Jesus says in the fifth chapter of Matthew, verse 6. Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. We know what it's like to have that temporary condition of hunger, of thirst. Some of us might know what it's like to have lived in a situation where that's a norm. But I want all of us to ask us this question, because we're all humans, we've all experienced this physical, uh, you know, physiological need for something, such as food and such as water. Do we hunger and do we thirst for righteousness, as Jesus says right here, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And I have three objectives today as we read and as we look at this little beatitude, as they're called. The first one is I want us to ask the question, what type of righteousness is Jesus talking about hungering and thirsting for? You know, what is righteousness? What, what kind of righteousness is Jesus talking about here? Secondly, what do people unfortunately replace this righteousness with? And how do they quench their thirst and satisfy their hunger? There's all different things that people use to try to supply that void, that emptiness that they might have in all different areas of life. And some of us might have experienced that ourselves and have seen it. And lastly, what does this thirst and hunger look like? In other words, how might we apply this hunger and thirst to our lives? So let's go... And I actually just want to read all of the Beatitudes here to give us some context. Matthew, the fifth chapter. Matthew, the fifth chapter, one of the key themes of the next three chapters of this gospel, this first gospel we have in the New Testament, is righteousness. Jesus, in some ways, could be looked at as like this revolutionary new preacher. You know, he's saying some things that are really kind of contradicting some of the ideas of the day. I actually believe that what Jesus was preaching here 
was something that was completely at the heart of the biblical message from the very beginning. Let's just think about it this way. Yes, Jesus said some things that were very, very different from what people were used to knowing or hearing. or the, He would talk about subjects in a different way that people were used to talking about. But is that because God changed somehow? Is that because the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible somehow was one way and then Jesus comes on the scene and he changes it all and this is the way that we're going to look at things now? Or is it, is it because people have continually misunderstood the heart of the biblical message for years and years and years? And when I'm talking about the heart of the biblical message, what it always and, and always, what it always pointed to, and that was a changed heart. Let's read this in chapter 5 of Matthew. Matthew starts out by saying, And seeing the multitudes... He went up on the mountain, and when he was settled, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And the one we're primarily focused on today, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And verse 11 even goes on to talk about another blessedness. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against and false, evil against and against you and falsely for my name's sake rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you and we commonly know that this is called the beatitudes and the beginning of what's known as the sermon on the mount it's next three chapters where jesus is on this mountain and he's talking to the people about things Things that maybe they have heard of a little bit about, but trying to change their perspective on those things. Trying to understand that it's not just about the physical implications of these different things that God has told us to do. But it's about the heart. It's about the inclination inside of us. This word that Jesus uses here is the Greek word, this word blessed, markurios, and conveys the idea of happy, favored, or privileged. Privileged and happy and blessed are you when you display these characteristics. Now, this idea of hunger and thirst has implications both physically and spiritually. You know, we look and see and ask the question, you know, who are the people that Jesus were talking to? You know, I just gave you an, an example or an illustration of my grandfather who grew up in, you know, a time that's much different than today in, in a lot of ways. You know, things were a little bit different. There were circumstances that people that lived back then went through that not everyone today might understand, especially individuals like myself that's, you know, younger to, you know, I, I don't even know what it's hardly like to not have, you know, many of the things that we have. I don't know what it's like not to have cars. I don't know what it's like not to have TV. I barely remember what it's like to not have a, a computer. Even though computers was something actually for the general public after I was born. Not everyone had computers growing up, but they've been around so long now and they're such a big part of our lives in the way we do our business, the way we go about doing all kinds of things. It's difficult for me to understand or remember exactly what it's like before we had such things. But in this day and age, there were many people that Jesus was talking to that probably understood what it meant to go hungry and thirsty. This was a day and age where there was a lot of people who probably lived in poverty. Probably the majority would be considered in poverty standards to today's standards. That first beatitude, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit can mean both things. Poor physically, many people living in poverty, understanding what that word poor ha has to do with. 
as well as a spiritual implication. Poor in spirit. Blessed are those who realize how spiritually bankrupt they are on their own when it comes to them and before God and understanding what righteousness is and how much they need God. This is a prevalence idea in the biblical message. I mean, oftentimes we see the prophets, Jesus himself, which is completely in line with much of the message of the prophets of the Old Testament, that are coming to the poor, that are coming to the downtrodden, that are coming to individuals that are in the majority camp, but are in those individuals that need God and understand what it's like to live a life that needs God because they don't know what's going to be next. They don't know where their next meal is going to come from. They don't know where, you know, where their protection is always going to come from. They're living in a time where there's all different kinds of raiding and raiderish type governments and empires and armies. One day you're living somewhere and the next day another foreign empire comes in, takes over all the stability of your life. And the prophets talks to these people and Jesus understands the conditions that much of the people living in the world during this time lived in. Jesus said in John 12, verse 8, the poor will always be with you. And we know the poor means many different things in the Bible. It can mean physical poor, physical poverty, but it can also mean spiritual poverty. Not only this, the Galilean context that Jesus is talking to, he's in Galilee, he's talking to individuals living in a region of the Bible who most people look down upon. You know, those were kind of the backwoodsy people, according to many of the people living in Palestine in Jesus' day. These are the people that you really don't want to associate with. They're just maybe a cut above the Samaritans, the ones that are really hated in the Palestinian world by many of the Jews during this time. And so there's a physical side to this idea of hunger that Jesus is playing on that we can think about. There's also a spiritual side. Because people living in this time, not only probably, like many people in the world, a large percentage of societies were based upon a small high class and a large low class. You know, the idea of a middle class, kind of the average, it's kind of somewhat of a new construct in modern times. It's something that really hasn't existed always. We always assume there's always been kind of a low class, middle class and upper class. But that's not something that's always been the case the way that we see it today. You know, we see today people living in, you know, the very wealthy, the middle class, the average, and then obviously people in the lower class are considered in the poverty areas. But there's one thing that is also similar when it comes to the spiritually afflicted or the spiritually uh, hungered, and that is all these individuals, many of them, the people that Jesus was talking to probably experienced a feeling of spiritual hunger living in a time where they knew where they knew that they were living in a Palestine that was being occupied by an unrighteous and Gentile government. And that is the Romans. The land of Palestine was occupied by Rome, which was a foreign power that the Jews of the day despised. And they looked forward to the day when a Messiah would come and would reestablish a kingdom like the prophets foretold. Living in this land of Palestine was a continual reminder of them falling at Babylon or to Babylon. If we think about it, the Israelites, they lose their freedom. They're taken into captivity to the Babylonians. And then the Persians come, come on... on on the scene, they allow them to go back, but guess what? They're still living in Palestine under the auspices of a foreign government. At that time, it was the Persians. Until eventually, down the line, it was the Romans who allowed them to live, allowed them to have a temple, but still controlled everything, and as long as it complied with Roman law. And so many people in this day that Jesus was talking to were probably very hungry very thirsty for righteousness. They were hungry for the promises, the things that they had read about for many, many years since they were young. They probably were ready for those things that the prophets had foretold about a restored Israel. 
You know, sometimes we read the Bible and we say, you know, we look, there's this guy, Jesus, he's rejected by many. And then he has these disciples and he teaches them and they accept him. He dies, he rises from the dead and he commissions them to go out and make disciples of all the world. And many people reject it and some come along. But sometimes I think that we, we forget that there's a lot of people that were legitimately righteous individuals longing for righteousness. That were hungry for righteousness. And Luke, the second chapter, we're not going to turn there, but I'll, you can on your own time when you have a chance. But there's this little story about Jesus being born. And right after he's born, uh, after his birth, he's brought up to Jerusalem so Joseph and Mary could do the necessary sacrifice and presentation of Jesus as was outlined by the law, which was a requirement for firstborn males. And there's this interesting story about these two individuals. These two individuals, a man and a woman. A man by the name of Simeon and a woman by the name of Anna. And they were both said to be there that righteous individuals looking forward to the restoration and redemption and deliverance of Israel. There were individuals there looking forward to this time where God was going to intervene once again and restore Israel back and establish Israel back what the prophets had foretold Israel would be, would be restored to. We even get to Acts. Later, Jesus dies. He rises from the dead. He teaches the disciples for a manner of days up until the day of Pentecost, right, be, right before Pentecost when he was ascended. But right in Acts, right before Jesus ascends to heaven, the disciples still have this idea on their mind. This is still kind of a central idea of what the Messiah is supposed to do. He asked them the question, Lord, is it at this time you're now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus doesn't say, you, you've misunderstood that. That's not what we're doing. Things have changed. We're, that's not part of the plan. Jesus doesn't reject that idea. Jesus calmly says, look, that's not for me to tell you. That's not for you to know. That's for the time that the Father has in his own power, his own authority. It's a reality. And it's a reality that's rooted in what the New Testament teaches us and what we've grown up in this heritage, in this church of God faith, what we've always talked and preached and looked forward to. And we know that that's the kingdom of God. We just heard a message right before this one that describes that day and age. That vision of the future. That time where righteousness will prevail over this earth. Are we thirsty for that vision? Are we thirsty for that one world government that's not ran by humans, but it's ran by Jesus Christ and Him only? With us, of course, ruling and reigning under Him. Are we ready for that? Is that not what we look forward to? We have to ask ourselves, do we hunger and thirst for the things that sometimes we preach, that we talk about, that we print, that we, you know, or is it just lip service? I'm asking us to ask ourselves that on an individual basis. You know, those ideas of the law of God flowing from Zion? I think I'm talking the language that we all understand. Do we long for the law of God flowing from Zion, Jesus ruling and reigning on earth, the lion and the lamb laying down together? Instruments of violence being transformed into instruments of peace. Do we have that righteousness that we long for? That we don't just want to live out ourselves, but we want to see cover this entire universe, this entire world. Many of us today we know what this world's like. Many of Jesus' hearers, they lived in a world where obviously there was all kinds of things going on, but a lot of unrighteousness was running amok, even among their own religious leaders. And we see that in our own time. There's a lot of similarities. There's a lot of differences, but there's a lot of similarities in different ways. We have to sometimes look at it, look at the context, understand how things were back then, and even though it looks very different, and in some ways it is very different, there's a lot of similarities. We see a lot of the same things today that they saw. We see oppression in many different forms. Evil and unrighteousness reign in many different forms. 
You know, oppression can come in all different things. It doesn't just have to be a foreign government oppressing you. And we see that in this world. There are foreign governments oppressing people in this world. But we also see other types of oppression. We see oppression from disease. We see oppression of illnesses, both physical and mental illnesses. Oppression of oppression by people having depression, leading to them being unstable and horrific things taking place, where they're actually to the brink of actually taking their own lives. We see oppression in people having addictions, poverty, and even corrupt governments abroad and at home. We can't just stand here and act like it's everyone else's government that's corrupt. We have to understand that our government's also human beings. And from time to time, there's going to be things that are not godly, that are unrighteous, that are not looking out for the fellow man. We know that there's corruption in the world. We see evil terrorist regimes taking place, actions, different activities that they're involved in. We can obviously cite one of the biggest one that ever the world's ever seen, 9-11 terrorist attacks of 2001. But unfortunately, those things are still going on to this day. Maybe not to that large of a scale, but we see that they still happen. How about evil from ordinary next-door people? And what I mean by that, what do you do? You turn on the news, and you hear about another one of these horrible situations, a mass shooting of some sort. Oftentimes, these, not always, I mean, there's signs, I guess you could say, that they will find about these individuals that they had uh, some indicators that they weren't stable. Sometimes they're just ordinary next-door people that somehow, under the radar, something's going on with them. That makes them commit abhorrent things. And it's everywhere. It's in schools, churches. Uh, movie theaters, regular old stores, malls, there's nowhere you can go anymore, it seems like, where this isn't a potential reality. That is something that seems to be somewhat new. And obviously, where does it begin? It begins right here. Something's not right right here and right here that's causing this to happen. We need a thirst and a hunger for righteousness. So let's just look at some connections to today. We know that people today, they hunger and thirst for many different things. And unfortunately, maybe we can think of situations where we've even done this. People will go and try to fill a void in their life, satisfy a hunger, quench a thirst in all different ways. In all different ways. Many things. People want satisfaction in life, happiness in life, safety and security in life. They want fulfillment in their marriages, fulfillment in their family lives, fulfillment in their careers, in their hobbies. I actually did a little Google search this morning when I was looking over this, and I just, you know, what are some top things that people, like in the United States, want? And I came to this 2016 article by the Huffington Post, and I was actually surprised and the reason I was surprised is because many of the things on there, they weren't bad things. They weren't bad things. The top ten things was happiness, of course money, freedom, peace, joy, balance, fulfillment, confidence, stability, and passion. You know, just looking at these things, I'm thinking to myself, that, you know, I'm, I'm thinking that I'm going to get on there, I'm going to see like all these materialistic things that people want. And I didn't find that. But it's interesting because I started thinking about it and I started saying, well, you know, it's, this is what people want. This, these are some of the natural human desires. But it's what people do and it's what people search out to try to get these feelings is where the problem lies. I mean, unfortunately, people look in all the wrong areas oftentimes. They think, okay, I want to... I want these things. I want to be satisfied. I want to be happy. I want to have money. Well, I need power. Power is going to get me these things. Power is going to get me these fulfillments. Or fame or notoriety or, or people understanding that I'm important. And then people go to other things. You know, more, I guess you could say, more destructive things. Like drugs or alcoholism. Just materialism. 
I want these feelings. How do I get these feelings? Oh, I know. I'll go and I'll get this, this new car. I'll get this new house, this big house. Show everybody how good I am. And it's almost more for show than it is for themselves. But somehow, by having these things, by getting this, by obtaining that, somehow there's this sense of accomplishment. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I've arrived. But unfortunately, unfortunately, the nutrients in those things are zilch. They don't sustain us. Eventually time goes by, and guess what? It comes back. That hunger comes back. It's not enough. It needs something more. Uh-oh, I'm having that void feeling again. I need something else. And it's this never-ending cycle of basically continually failing to fulfill that hunger, that thirst inside. There's something else that's interesting when we think about. People try to sometimes fill that void, that thirst, that hunger with religion. Well, let's just think about what people are like. You know, people by nature, human beings, we're kind of religious, even if we don't want to be. I mean, we're thinking creatures. We have, you know, we're cognitively aware. We're curious. We're a thinking species. And so naturally, it causes us as human beings to ask implications that are oftentimes religious, that have philosophical or religious potential answers. You know, maybe it's because we see trouble. You know, people, they see troubles. They see someone experiencing trouble. They themselves experience trouble. And it prompts them to start asking religious questions. Maybe they feel a void. They feel a void. They feel that there's something missing in their life. Ecclesiastes 3, chapter, or verse 11 says, God tells us that he has put eternity in our hearts. God has put eternity in our hearts. What does that mean? There's something in human beings that wants to think and consider about eternity. There's something in us that does not want to die. That does not want to cease from existing or living. God's put that there. He created us. He's the ultimate living being. And despite man falling, despite the sin nature that we have, God's glory still shines through. We've still been created after the image and likeness of God himself. And so we still have that inclination in us. Some people are just simply exhausted with the world. As we mentioned above, they see all of these evils. They see all of these troubles. They see poverty. They see people suffering. They see the uncertainty that this world has. Unstable world governments. People arguing about this and about that over political issues. And they start asking themselves the question. They start becoming curious, which is another thing that people naturally become when they're thinking and cognitively you know, aware individuals. They start asking the question, the old, age-old question, what does it all mean? What's the meaning of life? Where did I come from? And what's my place in this world? Oftentimes, unfortunately, they look in the wrong areas to fulfill these things or to get answers for. They try to fill their hunger or quench their thirst with the wrong things, such as false ideas, false righteousness, relying on science. Science can cure all. Science can explain all. Science is a wonderful thing. I'm a big believer in science. God gave us the ability to think. He gave us the ability to reason. It's a testimony to God and his nature, and his goodness, and his, uh, you know, unbelievable ability to create out of nothing, that we've discovered so many things. But sometimes it leads us to this thinking that we're self-sufficient, this lie, this, you know, this, oh, well, we got, we got all this. We can figure out how to exist forever. We can figure out somehow, and there's movies they make about this, right? You know, there's going to be a pill, or there's going to be a shot we can have, and we'll basically defeat the edict in the Garden of Eden, right? We're not all going to die. Well, it's almost strange because if we think about it, it's just a continu- it's that, that lie that Satan gave us, you won't die, continues sometimes if we start thinking that way. This is echoing 
echoing throughout eternity or throughout history, throughout time. So people are curious. Unfortunately, some people rely also, as we've seen in our own, uh, I guess you'd say history, they start relying on men. They start relying on individuals just telling them what they should believe, how they should feel, how they should worship, right? There's this interesting passage in Jeremiah, the second chapter, verse 11 through 13. God says, has a nation changed its gods which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. Of course, it's talking about idolatry. We don't have modern day idolatry, do we? We don't make things out of stone or out of wood and bow down to it and do rituals to it. It doesn't exist anymore, right? Unfortunately, idolatry is not something that's just physical that you actually see. It can be something that obviously much more. Verse 12 says, Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves, sisters, cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Looking for fulfillment to quench that thirst, to fill that hunger through things that really don't satisfy. That might mask and make you feel satisfied for a short period of time. But because the reality of it is nothing. It's, there's no sustenance to it. There's nothing real behind it. That hunger does not get quenched. Or that thirst does not get quenched. And that hunger does not get filled. Sometimes people go to formula theology. I think everybody can relate to this. We're human beings. Not only do we know what it's like to hunger. Not only do we not know what it's like to thirst. We also have this tendency to need, sometimes, security theology. You know, like, like if we do this, we can ensure that God's happy with us. You know, we need something. We need like a marker to know that, yeah, I'm on the right path. Okay, I, I, okay so if I do this... I'm in first resurrection guaranteed. You know, okay, I'm in uh, no doubts about it. And they start going to formula theology. We see this in every type of religion. You know, that idea, that formula theology, wear this covering, pray facing this direction, grow this beard, do this dance, don't do this dance. Chant these words, say it in Hebrew, say it in Latin, no, say it in Arabic. Confess to this person, read these books. So many religions today resort to man-made formulas. And sometimes ourselves, we can get involved in these man-made formulas. How about what's known as tabloid theology? I mentioned some of this in a a sermon I gave a few years ago at the feast. And I was talking about the the, the kingdom of a God. Tabloid theology. You guys know what tabloids are, right? I mean, I, I don't know how prevalent they are anymore. I don't go to the grocery store quite a, you know, a lot, but I remember growing up as a kid, you're walking through the aisle, right? Okay, and, and you look to your right, and there's like this like giant, you know, human on this newspaper. And you're like, what in the world is that? And it's big bold letters, like, you know, giant remains found, like in some place. Like so some crazy, like get your, you know, it really gets someone's attention type uh, a, a newspaper flash. Tabloid theology, there's a lot of that. You know, tabloid theology, like, you know, you know, the Nephilim has been found. You know, those giants of Genesis 6, we've discovered them. Look at these bones. And there's some guys in, like, some hole with these huge, I don't know how they do it. It's obviously some sort of doctored picture that they've done. Like, they're in this, this, this uh, hole digging in, like, a big old, like, jawbone that's, like, the size of a man. Or... The ark has been found. And don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with people trying to search uh, for remains of the ark. I'm not saying anything bad like that. But tabloid theology, they need like, it's almost like they need like an adrenaline rush. Like something, wow, this is something that's been discovered. and I need that. It's like a rush. It's, it's, it's like the Indiana Jones complex. You've got to find something that's new and exciting and confirms the Bible. Which we know that there's a lot of evidence for the Bible. You know, someone writes a book claiming to go to heaven. I've been to heaven. Read my book. And I can tell you how you can go to heaven. Well, I mean, a normal person says, person went to heaven. They seem to have the formula to go to heaven. Seems legit. And they go buy the book. And people get involved in that stuff. I'm not kidding you. Many of you probably have heard of this. There are ministers or so-called ministers that have written books claiming to go to heaven. 
One of them has even claimed that God told him that he wanted him to have this really nice Learjet. And God did not want him to pay for it. He wanted the people he preached to to pay for it, not him. So there's all these different types of tabloid theology. And people rush to these things because they look for fulfillment. Somehow they're going to be satisfied by these things. The thirst and hunger we are supposed to have is for righteousness. Which brings us to the question, just what type of righteousness is Jesus talking about? Just what type of righteousness? The meaning of righteousness, when we look at Jesus' words, like we could have year-long series on what righteousness is. Simply put, I think it means having a heart after God. It means seeking the ways of God in every single thing. That's what righteousness is. Obeying God. Looking at God's precepts. The idea of one thirsting to be a living the idea of one's thirsting to be living a life that is faithful to God and for that type of behavior to exhibit, be exhibited in society. Do we seek and do we thirst after a personal and a social righteousness? You know, we hear that word social justice a lot. I, I, I'm not really big on that word. I like the idea of social righteousness. I want social righteousness to reign. If social righteousness reigns in this land... There will be complete justice. Righteousness and justice, they're completely in line with each other. I heard someone say this just the other day, and I thought it was completely true. It was completely random that I came across this. It actually was a football coach, and he was giving an interview. I was very surprised he said this. I could not disagree with anything he said. And he basically talked about all the different things that are going on in our world, the problems that we have in this country, a football coach, of all people, kind of giving a theological treatise. And he simply said that, you know what? What does the Bible say the two great commandments are? And we know that that's a synopsis of, and they imply all many different things. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and your neighbors yourself. And he just was talking about how, wow, if we could just live in a society where people obeyed that, those two commandments, our problems would go away. Most of them. And they would. They would. Looking for those characteristics that are marked by the Messiah's coming and the inauguration of God's reign through the Messiah on earth to become reality. Do we look for those things? Those things we talk about. The land or the law flowing from, from Zion. The eradication of pagan empires. A righteousness that longs for, as Jesus said in his model prayer, May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As Reggie just mentioned earlier, he talked about this wonderful world to live in where Christ reigns, where there was nothing but righteousness. Think about all the things that we would not need. We wouldn't need locks anymore. We wouldn't have to worry about, you know, we wouldn't have the arguments that we have about whether or not, you know, this, you know, was this right or was this wrong. I mean, people would just treat each other the way they're supposed to be treated. And people wouldn't just treat them the, that way because of some policy, but they would do it from the heart. They would have a personal inclination to do those things. It's what Christ talks about here all throughout this Sermon on the Mount. He says, you've heard this, I tell you, even if you do this, even if in your heart you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery. He goes to the source of what drives us to action. And that is heart. That is heart. Jesus gives us words of encouragement here. He says, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness shall be filled, shall be satisfied. Jesus tells us that this hunger, this thirst that we have can be filled. Not through the things of this world. Not through materialism. Not through false theology. Not through false righteousness. But through the genuine and true righteousness as outlined by Christ himself. Psalm 119 verse 40. 
going to read this. This is just one little scripture of a beautiful psalm. A psalm that's the longest that there is in the Bible. And every single one of its words are just uh, beautiful and idealistic. But this one struck me as I was preparing this message. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me in your righteousness. Do we have a heart that feels that? Is our heart is our heart in line with that writer's desire when that person wrote that, this 119th Psalm? Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me in your righteousness. It's a beautiful psalm. Longest psalm that we have in the entire Bible. Do we want to see justice reign on this earth? Which can only happen through the inauguration of Jesus' kingdom on this earth? Do we want to see what Isaiah 55 says? We just go there, verse 1 through 3. Isaiah, the 55th chapter, verses 1 through 3. It says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? That's an interesting question, right? Why do you spend money for what is not bread? Bread's supposed to satisfy you, right? It's supposed to fill that, that hunger, right? Why do you spend your energies on things to fulfill you, on things that will never fulfill what you're looking for fulfillment for? That's what that means right there. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? And your wages for what is not satisfied. Listen carefully to me. To me. And eat what is good. And let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Here with your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you. The sure mercies of David. Do we hunger and thirst after righteousness? Let's just ask the question, what does hungering and thirsting look like for the Christian? What does hunger and thirsting do? When you're hungry, when you're thirsty, all of us would probably agree it does one thing to us. It prompts us to action. It makes us act. My mother, my, my father's mother, my great-grandmother, my my grandfather, who I told you about at the beginning of this message, his mother, she lived to be 100 years old. She's all four foot five, whatever she was. Lived to be 100 years old, five children, no husband around, nothing to eat. That bag of beans was gone. Last bit just been ate. They had to act. They had to get out onto the dirt road because there was no roads back then that were paved in the area that they lived in and they had to just start walking. They didn't know what they were going to find. They didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't know if they were going to run into, you know, someone who has ill intent that there was no other option. Five children, five little kids and one four foot five woman walking out looking for help. It, prov it, it provoked them to act. And it does the same thing for us when we desire something. When we want something, when we have a desire for something, when we have a thirst for something, we act. We act upon that impulse. We shouldn't always, don't get me wrong, there's bad impulses. But in this case, if we hunger for righteousness, if we thirst for righteousness, it's going to prompt us to act. It's going to prompt us to be set apart, to seek sanctification, to eradicate sins in our own life that we need to work on, to pray to God that more help comes our way to be more in line with His will, for our will to be more in line with His will, to, to live a life more in line with the holiness that is God, to do this even in the face of difficulties of life. Is our hunger for God and our hunger for righteousness so strong that even whenever we have issues and problems and difficulties in this world, it's still at the forefront of our minds? It, seeks, it prompts us to seek social righteousness, as I also mentioned. 
Do we have situations in our business life, in our community life, in our own church life that maybe we can help bring about social righteousness? Social righteousness. Think about the people that are in need. Jesus came to me and you. Jesus came to people in the world. And me and you and the people in the world, they weren't the wealthy. Yes, Jesus came to everybody. Don't get me wrong. But Jesus came to the leper. He came to the lame. He came to the people who were downtrodden. He came to us because He knew how poor in spirit we were. And obviously we were hungry individuals. Hungry for spiritual food. For righteousness. Are there poor among us that we could help feed and clothe? Are there oppressed among us that we could help break free? Can we be a witness to God's kingdom on earth in the here and now? In the here and now. Do we thirst and hunger for social righteousness? That is to see our society be eradicated by its evils. Do we thirst for righteousness and hunger for it so much that we don't just want to put ourselves in line, but we want to be the salt of the earth. We want that to be, this world to be transformed. Not just that we're setting back, I hope the world gets better, don't get me wrong, I understand that we're just individuals. But let's think about this. If, if, if you were starving and you only had one piece of steak on a plate, would you still eat it? Or would you say, no, I'm not going to eat that because I'm really hungry and this would just be one bite. What I'm getting at is that even though we can only maybe as individuals make a small difference, God's really big. God's really big. And we should be trying to make every difference we can. And so do we hunger and thirst for righteousness? As Reggie said, it's 2019. It's a new year. It's hard to say that everybody probably understands what I mean when they go 2018 and they have to cross out the 8 and put a 9 there. Probably another month of that and then we'll finally get in the habit of putting a 9 instead of an 8. But it's a new year. We know that we don't go by the world's calendar. We know that you know the spring is whenever God reckons the first of the year. But it's interesting because this is kind of a, it's a new year means that we have another round of holy days coming up. And that one that's coming up soon before we know it is, is the Passover. Okay, well, we, we understand the covenant that we have went into with God and with Christ. So as we begin this new year, as our worldly year is, let's just think about that. Let's ask ourselves, what is our hunger level and thirst level like for, for righteousness? For righteousness and that small little influence that we might have in ourselves as individuals, but also that small little peace of society that we live in. It might, be, it might be really small. It might be, you know, 20 people. You come into 20 people, usually on average, in a, in, a, in a week's worth of time. Okay? That's an opportunity, though, to make a difference. That's an opportunity to be light to the world. That's an opportunity to be salt of the earth, as Jesus says. Okay? It might be much bigger than that. All right? As we go through this new year, and as we begin this new year, let's just ask ourselves that question. Do we have... A hunger and thirst for righteousness.